It wasn't until a few years later, when we were despairingly packing up our house so some strangers could trot upon our immaculate fur floors and live in our beautiful finished basement, that I found the letter from my shrill, fussily dressed lower school headmaster, Elaine. It said that my seven-year-old self would have to be reined in by the psychotherapeutic meat grinder before the school would consider letting me return for the next term. It wasn't the first time I'd heard that threat, and eventually they would make good on it. Hello and welcome to Astrocytes. I am your host, Andrew Rose, and today we're talking about collisions with the psychiatric profession, fruitful or fracturing. My first therapist was a rangy, half-bald man who let his earth-toned dress shirts blouse splendidly upon his knobby thighs, as was the fashion at the time. I should probably say now that there was never any doubt that I needed some kind of psychiatric contusion. It wasn't really that I objected to therapy, just that I objected to almost everyone on Earth. Friends who don't have a clue. People who especially exemplified the granola covering rat poison Seattle attitude induced a terminal apoplexy in me. I rolled my eyes at adults because they were stupid and I was unable to break myself of the habit. Let's discuss today's hero of medicine. Our first ever hero, Jean-Martin Charcot, was born in Paris in 1825, at a time when visiting a doctor resulted in death as often as survival. To the immeasurable benefit of countless suffering people, Charcot was both a scientific and artistic genius. Charcot changed medicine forever, but the existing world in which he trained and practiced demanded a physician who had exquisite personal and aesthetic sensitivity in order to understand and diagnose patients. In fact, it wouldn't be fair to relegate the polymathic practitioner to his outstanding achievements in the field of neurology alone. His list of students and collaborators, including Freud and Gilles de Torat, demonstrates the breadth and gluttony of his inquiries. What even lay people think is obvious medical procedures for instance, interview the patient carefully, use imaging to nail down the disease process or presentation. In fact, Charcot would draw or paint until photography was invented. Such things as aiming for coherent, simple explanations of diseases, these ideas in fact took hundreds of years to penetrate mainstream medical ideology. Aside from the maddeningly medieval thinking of Charcot's time, young physicians in Paris were also treated to a residency in the Salpêtrière, the massive charitable-slash-asylum complex Charcot's predecessor, Dr. Philippe Pinel, 1745-1826 initiated the moral treatment movement at the asylums where he practiced, and personally freed the shackled mental patients at the Salpetriere in 1800. And so it was in this tumultuous climate of revolution at every corner that Jean-Martin Charcot emerged as one of the most important figures in the history of medicine. His method was one of delicacy and patience. When he painted his patients in their agony or applied an unbending scientific rigor to their plights, he was using all of his senses to summon a scientific explanation for the insanity of disease. Go away from my window Leave at your own chosen speed my mom and I walked into my new counselor's crushingly bland waiting room, I began to scheme of ways to free myself from this quackery. 
Jeff Fabashushan, even his family name was squishy and indeterminate, emerged before I could make a break for it, and cozily beckoned us into his office. That day I managed to stay put and moan bitterly about my cruel classmates for fifty minutes. In between visits to Fabby, I took various antidepressants starting around this time and continuing through college. They didn't help, and in fact I'd bet they're responsible for my childhood girth, which would have been comical on another boy. Maybe a Chris Christie type. By my rough calculation, I've seen about fifteen psychiatrists, four nurse practitioners, four psychotherapists, and a woman who I discovered was severely bipolar in addition to holding a doctorate in nurse practitionering. I was an obstreperously whistling tea kettle at best and a volcano spewing lava like Old Faithful in every direction at my most decompensated and bleeding. Unfortunately, those moments of molten frustration have been increasing lately. I didn't know how to scale the walls of my hardened fortifications, and no one could even begin to help me. As intense as this mental illness Formula One race has been, I've had plenty of legitimate reasons over the years for falling apart completely. My parents' divorce, which filled my lava reserves with enough organic napalm to last a lifetime, now that I'm 30, the traumatic blunderbusses are somehow coming even more quickly than when I was a kid. My boss verbally abused me. I'm on workers' comp right now. While I was dawdling in my apartment a couple months ago, I decided to take the dog to the park. The next thing I know, it's 3 a.m., and my mom is picking me up from the hospital in Beaverton, and I have no memory of that day at all. And right after that, my psychiatrist fired me for being too depressed. Of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention good old Cedar Hills. Being involuntarily committed to a nuthouse felt like the natural culmination of a lifetime of psychiatric treatment. The topos was copacetic. But the second I landed in that well-kept but unloved hospital, I learned that Dr. Akib, who'd been my doctor for more than a year, no longer wished to treat me. It was my mom who narked me to the OHSU campus police, but when I was released from the booby hatch, I ran straight to her, because the voice in my head was chanting, Die now, die now, die now, and I wanted a fair chance of not... dying. Well, that almost brings us up to date with that end of my medical maelstrom. I could spend a lifetime unspooling my parents' sins, but their love and genuine effort have never faltered. There are so many times when I tiptoe to the end of a strong branch just to gaze longingly into nothingness. It's important to have someone to reach out to. While Charcot was the first physician to define multiple sclerosis as an illness and invent a diagnostic triad for it, uh, that is, nystagmus, intention tremor, and scanning speech, the etiology of the disease, much less a cure, remains beyond our grasp. But Charcot teaches us that medicine is first about the art of careful observation. In fact, he diagnosed the heart condition that would kill him in 1893 a year prior powerless to influence his destiny. There is no doubt a great sorrow and frustration in being able to see what is wrong, yet totally unable to influence the abject course of events. But the history of curing diseases and saving patients' lives is still very short compared to millennia of folk remedies and deaths from minor infection. Charcot teaches us that there is no such thing as impotent knowledge. His legacy is that of observing the whole patient and trying to recreate his suffering in a lab to define it, and then to destroy it.
On today's show, we've followed Charcot's peerless Sitzfleisch to uh, medicines and other treatments for MS that have made the disease little more than a hangnail in the lives of many patients. Charcot truly would be astonished. Yet the drugs are not perfect, and they cannot yet rebuild what the disease has demolished. I think of Charcot walking into the Salpetriere, a hospital that had only a few years prior been little more than a vicious prison, and the persistence of someone who knows their achievements are just links in the chain to future greatness. All thanks for listening to this episode of Astrocytes. If you like the show, why not drop us a line at astrocytespod, P-O-D, at gmail.com. We're always looking for new people. To my love, took it down.